0: Welcome to Global Data Pod, JP Morgan's podcast on all things interesting and important in the global economy. And today, I'm joined by Jay Barry, Mike Hansen, and Joseph P. Lupton, <laughs> and we're gonna do a little bit of a of a quick uh, reaction to what we we saw from the Fed, but really also try to put this in context of what we've been seeing and thinking about. As we watch uh, the central bank community, and I, I think we'll focus primarily on the on the developed market central bank community here. So let me just start with the you know the simple headline that I think at at the bare bones side we got pretty much what we would have expected from the Fed today. We got a Fed that teed up a March hike pretty decisively. We got a Fed that teed up an early. Um, Uh, unwind of the balance sheet, an end to the tapering that that is done in March, not earlier, as we had been uh, anticipating the Fed would refrain from that more aggressive signal. Um, And we got a Fed that, on paper at least, um, does not give us much guidance about the path ahead. It it neither followed the uh, Greenspan, uh, Yellen, we're going to move on a gradual basis as they came upon their (sighs) tightenings in 2004. And 2015, nor was there any decisive signal of a Fed telling us that they're clearly moving faster. However, when we look at this meeting and particularly the press conference, um, the clear tone was one of a Fed that feels like it's got a lot of work to do, and that it was would be clearly um, open to the um, uh, idea that it may need to move. Uh, more than 25 basis points per quarter. If I can read one quote, um, and there are probably a few here that uh, make this point, I'll read the one where Powell says, we will need to be nimble so that we can respond to the full range of possible outcomes. We will remain attentive to the risks, including the risk that high inflation is more persistent than expected and are prepared to respond as appropriate. That does not seem to me to be a balanced signal about um, the risks, about which way the Fed is moving. And I think that tone was carried through most of this uh, uh, press conference. So let's start with uh, Jay. It's good you're here, so you don't have a bunch of dumb economists talking about the market. Uh, so Jay, how do you process what you saw uh, today, both from the Fed and and, and from the market, um, in the context of your your views?
1: You know, first, thanks for having me, Bruce. <clears throat> Second, I think. You know, the takeaway is, is that, you know, like you titled your outlook piece for this year, the Fed chair said this time is different, right? He went and made um, painstaking numerous references to the fact that this is not 2015. And I um, you know, think to your point about measured versus gradual, he also used the sort of term um, that they're going to be steadily moving steadily in, in this cycle, or at least early in this cycle, which I think has put the markets on notice that there is some likelihood that the Fed could be moving faster than a quarterly pace of hikes. So before today, the market was pricing in close to our forecast of four hikes from March of 22 to March of 23. And with the moves that we've had today, I mean, the markets have priced in an additional 15 basis points of tightening over the first year of the cycle. You know, the market's still putting the Fed on the the market's still pricing a risk that the Fed could go faster than a 25 at the March meeting. It's pricing a probability there, with pricing in more than 25 basis points hikes then. But it's saying you know, we should be prepared to to go faster. And you look at the way the yield curve behaved, it's sort of, I think, representative of that. Uh, Two-year yields are up 12 basis points. Longer-term yields still rose significantly, but the curve flattened, sort of saying that the Fed will be going faster. Um, And and it also said to perhaps a, a higher level than we previously expected. Um, the other thing I think you know pointed out to me on, on on balance sheet is that while they've made no decisions, he continues to talk about how the balance sheet is significantly larger and it will have to be drawn down and run off at a significantly faster pace than we've seen in previous cycles as well.
0: Let's talk about balance sheet uh, a little bit. Um, he didn't give a lot of detail today, but just lay out for us your view on what we should uh, expect uh, from the balance sheet. Obviously, we we still have a a few months here before they're done talking and thinking about this, but from, you know, around the middle of the year when they get ready to start unwinding, what is it, it that you're looking for in terms of magnitude and and contours of this adjustment?
1: Yeah, I think you know, assuming this starts in in July and that the caps move from 25 billion a month and 15 billion in Treasuries and 10 billion in MBS up to 100 billion per month by basically the end of the year, that would have you assume that there's something like um 215 billion or 220 billion of runoff that occurs in, in 2022 and then clearly a much larger number as we head into 2023 when we hit the maximum caps. So you know that's clearly going to mean that at least on the treasury side of the equation, there's no more financing that will need to be done in non-fed hands. but the thing I think that is unanswered here right now, Bruce is in our assumptions we've made the case that the Fed will start to allow treasuries and mortgages to run off at the same time. But that uh, the bill portfolio will only run off like once we hit the sort of cruising altitude of 100 billion per month because bills can fill in the gaps from um when the months that the, the caps are not binding or um which is really the non-refunding months you know i think we need to learn more about whether the fed would be willing to let its bill portfolio run off at onset alongside the increased caps and in treasuries and mortgages and i don't think we have a sense of that because that could raise the balance sheet runoff number this year by an additional 275 billion or something versus that baseline.
0: Well, one of the points uh, we made, Mike, particularly in a note that we just wrote, is that you know the Fed is going to put the balance sheet on some kind of a autopilot mode. It's going to announce a path and let it run. And you know the the path of rates to some degree will be determined not just by the economy, but the degree of tightening in financial conditions. So how how sensitive do you think? Financial conditions and and specifically your you know your interest rate forecast to whether or not they move quicker on on unwinding uh, bills and more generally um, in terms of the Fed possibly moving faster than than we currently are forecasting.
1: Yeah, so I think in some of the frameworks we've had around on average over the 2009 to current period. It seems like every trillion dollars of balance sheet expansion is worth something like 12 or 13 basis points in 10-year Treasury yields. So um, I, I think that's an average over the period first, and it's a really important point to make because the argu- it's arguable that the impact was much larger when rates were higher and term premium were higher nearly a decade ago than they are right now. Second, I think this is an important point as well, that the act of letting the balance sheet run down and the chair reiterated today that it's going to be passive runoff it won't be asset sales is very different than actively buying treasuries out in the in the secondary market which would argue for a slightly reduced effect versus that sort of average coefficient and then finally how it's financed actually makes a big difference too so we just published our projections for the for the february refunding that the treasury announces next week and we think at least at onset this will be largely T-bill focused, and then over time, a combination of T-bill and shorter maturity Treasury coupons, because this is a cyclical phenomenon for the for the Fed. So all in, faster pace of balance sheet runoff and more balance sheet runoff would raise our, you know, ten-year targets. But I don't think necessarily that you know 12 basis points for every trillion dollars necessarily applies. It probably haircut it somewhat, but it would still sort of, in aggregate, if we're thinking about if potentially the market pricing of faster pace of hikes. And a faster pace of balance sheet normalization that would run the risk of of a of a higher forecast versus our two thirty. Could you give me
0: a range? Let's so let's say you know we're not changing our Fed call. We're not asking you to change your modal view on the Fed. But given some range of outcomes, which as we had said has a greater bias for the Fed doing more than once a quarter, uh, what kind of range would you put on where Treasury yields, ten year yields end the year? Yeah, so the baseline, the modal
1: view is is 230. I think this clearly presents some upside risk. Like, you know, what would be the upside risk if, say at maximum, the Fed went twice as fast as we had forecast and it goes at every meeting rather than every quarter. You know, add an additional hundred basis points of tightening, that's probably worth another 40 basis points on our forecast. So something closer to
0: two and three quarters overall. So let me turn to you, Mike. Think about a US economy where. Fed's moving, maybe faster, maybe not, but moving. We're going to get Treasury yields going above two percent, maybe as high as two fifty. Let me just round off what you you just said, uh, Jay. Um, you know, how worried are you about the the resiliency, the health of the U.S. economy against that backdrop? Obviously, the Fed wouldn't be too worried if it was actually going to follow through on this. But, but how do you think about it? And also, you know, you've written about the kind of the interaction between guidance on balance sheet and How that uh, plays out in terms of uh, also guidance on rates. So, take us through a little bit of that.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, our forecast presumes that the Fed's going to be moving, uh, you know, four times this year and continuing with a similar pace into next year in order to, to, you know, kind of keep an economy that's going to be running above potential cooling down towards getting inflation back towards target. Right. So the the whole idea is that the path that we're expecting for this uh, recovery, you know, as we get to the latter stages of the pandemic and then I guess into an endemic stage, presumes that you're going to continue to have a relatively hot labor market, uh, you know, relatively strong economy and so it's going to warrant the Fed doing the kind of tightening that we've talked about both in terms of rates and the balance sheet. Um, Obviously, you've you've certainly seen some clients sort of question that, and and you could argue that the the rates market is perhaps questioning whether the Fed can go as much as as we're thinking because the the terminal rate that's priced in seems to be a fair bit lower. Um, One possible explanation, of course, is that the the market thinks that the economy is more fragile than we do. Another is that the market has this view that uh, QT, quantitative tightening, the shrinking of the balance sheet, is uh, a fairly potent substitute for rate hikes. Um, and so that's, that's a challenging uh, view to kind of reconcile with what Jay was just talking about in the sense that there's a relatively moderate impact, it seems, on QT on, on rates. Um, and in particular, as he mentioned, you know, the, the impact of letting the balance sheet run off is proportionally smaller for each additional quantum of uh, balance sheet that you're subtracting versus adding in the, in the prior uh, stages of, of QE, right? Um, and so, the challenge I think that it prevents specifically is that the market is anticipating that the Fed isn't going to be either be able or need to go that much. Uh, but our forecast is pointing to the, the likelihood of the Fed is going to have to be you know, more aggressive than the market is expecting in order to make sure that you actually maintain price stability over the medium run. Then, something's got to give, and in particular, market pricing around sort of the, the pace of hikes, you know, maybe not this year, but the next year and beyond, and where the terminal rate. Uh, you know, potentially is not consistent with the views around both what we expect for the economy and, and the efficacy that we're looking for for QT.
0: Well, let me also jump in on a, a related topic. And, and none of us in this room are going to be claiming to have any expertise in terms of understanding QT transmission to, to equity markets. But certainly one of the questions I've been asked a lot in, in the last few days is um, how much should we be worried if if the transmission of QT is more uh, significant in terms of uh, lowering equity uh, uh, prices, and here I think there's an important point to make, which is, in previous cycles where we've seen equity markets going down and the economy weakened very sharply, it's usually been because the equity market adjustment is a signal of the um, um, the underlying problems of the economy that the market is is picking up, and that you can say is certainly what happened 2007 and 8, and certainly 2000. Into 2001, but when equity markets go down because they're repricing the Fed in an underlying healthy economy, and that's obviously uh, a big conditional statement, um, then there is uh, relatively limited transmission from equity prices itself uh, to the to the real economy, and 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 certainly from a Fed point of view, you know, I would think as they try to normalize uh, policy stances, they're also trying to normalize broader financial conditions, and one of the things they um, they have to address there is whether or not asset prices are are elevated in an environment of uh, the very low for long uh, policy stance they've been guiding up till up till now. So that's the, you know that's some backdrop on here. And I do want to emphasize that the other piece of this story, which we're not talking about and we're not going to really get into, is to the degree to which the rise in long term interest rates in U.S. any possible um, adverse effect in equity markets. How does it spill into credit? And credit becomes a very important. Uh, consideration and our baseline view generally is that underlying credit conditions are healthy and resilient, but that will get tested here um, let's let's turn Joe to a little bit more on the global side of this um, you know we had the Bank of Canada today uh, which surprised us a little bit we've got some rethinking going on on our ECB story um, you know what's the right message we should be sending right now about a fed that's starting to go in motion in terms of where the other uh advanced economy central banks are right now and what they're likely to do over the next year
3: well i actually think the the general theme is going to be one of which you had a period of high synchronized monetary po- overall policy accommodation through the through the recession the pandemic and then it's kind of held that in place for a while and now you're going to move into this phase where people are gonna start normalizing. We definitely see that's the general theme for a lot of central banks. But I do think more importantly, what you're gonna increasingly see over the coming kind of months and quarters here is some divergences. Uh, Now, again, I wanna emphasize the direction is towards normalization, but the pace of that normalization, I think is gonna start to vary. And I think those differences uh, across central banks, across policymakers, across macroeconomies, I think has important implications for kind of cross-country asset pricing. Uh, you know, obviously, currencies jump out at you in that in that type of comparison. But you know, it, you know, for starters, I think we we've already had some of the developed markets, uh, you know, starting to move. You've had um, uh, you know RBNZ, you've had um uh where I've been Bank Bank. England Bank of England norgis Bank Bank of England uh got going we thought Bank of Canada was going to start today they obviously uh surprised us but it does seem like the the, the 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 modus uh uh for uh the Bank of Canada was to remove the forward you know the kind of extreme forward guidance in this meeting really setting up a rate hike that's that's going to be coming here so I think that's the direction of things there the big Dog in the in the room here, other than the Fed, of course, is the ECB, and this is the one that's it's always kind of fun to watch, right? I mean, when's the last time the ECB hiked? Was is, can we say it's been more than a decade now, right? That
0: ill-fated 2011. hike. Uh,
3: yeah, that ill-fated hike in 2011 that they quickly reversed. So, other than that, it's been over ill-fated a decade. two
0: two hikes in 2011. Two hikes. There you go. Uh, Let's not let them forget that
3: it's 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 been over a decade since we've seen a, an ECB hike uh, so i mean my inclination is to think that they're going to get pulled, right? And that's the way to think about this. This is really kind of a tug of war of the Fed kind of starting to move, and the ECB looking at its macro economy, feeling like it doesn't feel the type of pressure either in the labor markets, either in in uh, in inflation. Uh, certainly, that the Fed is is feeling. It's not. It's not to say it's not seeing anything labor markets are kind of you're starting to see some hints of of wage pressure uh not a lot uh you you are going to see inflation get up to two percent this year uh core inflation up to two percent but there it seems like the ecb is really relying on this kind of transitory uh kind of view and then core inflation dips back down in uh, 2023 so you know they're going to start normalizing but we think it doesn't start until uh the first quarter of next year and then going i think it's 75 Next year and seventy-five the year after, so going relatively slowly. And I, would be inclined to think there's more adjustment that needs to be taken there, kind of like an out of the money call view, you know, if you want to put
0: it that way. But you know, Joe, let me I, just jump in here because I think that I'm not sure you're really saying what you're trying to, because you're, you're the message I'm hearing from you is that the ECB is going to get pulled by the Fed, where I think the ECB is going to get pulled by many of the same macro. Developments that are that are showing up in the U.S. early, and that includes a labor market that's tight and is going to get tighter, inflation that's not going to come down as quickly uh, and as largely as the central bank wants. Right, and, that's and a macro while you're, call, and let, though, Bruce. Right. Me, so well, I'm. Well, that's, I'm the, probably, point. that's no, the point. That's the point. No, I agree. I agree. If let you want to make say one say, other like, point, let me, the make, macro make, call. Let, me, let me make one other point here, which you, yeah. you know I think it's important that there is much less clear signs of any real wage pressure. In the euro area but the wage settlement process in europe is bunched in these large settlements and the german settlements are concentrated at the end of this year where there's going to be a need for cost of living adjustments and if we're right the economy's going right, to right and that's why strong. we
3: are we are a little bit more hawkish than where the market is and we have that hike in the first quarter
0: of uh i'd, of I'd say year. we we should be kind of worrying about the ecb Turning and not turning on the back of the Fed, but turning on the back of its own macro conditions late this year. They would. So you're saying they would hike before the wage settlements? I'd say the window opens in the fourth quarter.
3: Yeah, it, I mean, you, Bruce. Obviously, you know, I'm I'm partial to that because I've been bugging I, you. I just and I want others to get you there. This, I just want to get I know, you to say I that. But, you know, what I was reminded of when I started looking at the history of the ECB is that they haven't hiked in over a decade while the Fed was going through a hiking cycle, right?
0: You could have well, made the same argument back then. This Well, this time is different, Joe. This time is different.
3: Yeah, that, that, that's fair enough. I right? think I, it's,
0: uh, it's, 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 it's very different for the U.S., and it's, it's probably, if anything, even more remarkably different, if we're right. On our macro. Views, I mean, the course. thing
3: is, Bruce, when you talk about the Fed and you listen to Powell, you'd probably you would agree it's the labor market, right? That's the thing that has really got them kind of itching to get going here. And the the ECB doesn't have that. Their labor market is just not showing that type of pressure.
0: Well, I and would it, just say this, Joe. Six months from now, the things are going to look different. Well, that's my point.
3: I mean, yeah, that's that's you can say that about anything. I mean, and, and
0: by the way, the ECB. As the Fed, you might want, I think inflation has mattered for the Fed, but I agree with you that the labor market is the big driving force here. Uh, I think the ECB is a much more inflation-obsessed central bank. So if inflation stays persistently anywhere in the vicinity of 2% or higher as we go through um, this year, it's going to make. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're Let definitely
3: me, preaching.
0: What's I know I am. That's why I'm a little bit amused by this Surprised. conversation. <laughs> You think you just want to take devil's advocate here, but anyway, that's not that's not the surprise. Jay, I want to come back to you for a second. How sensitive do you think your forecast on treasury yields are to global developments? If you know, and what matters on the global side most?
3: And and for what it's worth, to add to that, Powell did was asked a little bit about this and Paula jumped on that as to, to give them a, an out on some views on the tenure that the the global backdrop is one of the factor that drives the tenure year and the yield curve, in which case they have kind of less less con- policy levers on that front.
1: I, I think it makes it easier for me to get to my forecast, even easier for me to get to my forecast in that case, Bruce, if it's happening globally. And I mean, you know, clearly we can think about global policy expectations um, as having an impact on, on U.S. rates. And I think that's a that's an important story. And it has an important, I think, um, impact on demand as well. Right. The chair actually talked about this. I think it was in the press conference at the last meeting where he talked about foreign demand for treasuries, perhaps holding down long term yields. And we'd say this when you look at things on a sort of rolling currency hedged adjusted basis, it's it actually looks attractive to buy treasuries versus, say, JGBs or buns, um, and on the more attractive side of where we've been the last five years, if you've got a global move higher in yields, you know some of that demand probably steps away. And you know it's notable for us when you look at the Treasury's data, the TID TIC data show pretty modest foreign demand and modest foreign private demand for Treasuries last year. But you take out the Cayman Islands, which we think is a proxy for hedge funds and it's actually strongly positive and it suggests that there was very large foreign demand for treasuries last year particularly when we hit the peak in yields in March and April and particularly later in the year when we started to reprice the fed so if all central banks in the dm are starting to go i think not you take all. away we from it. i think that's the oh problem oh man they jumped on that one
3: <laughs> and i know I, I do want to, I don't want to force you into overstating it but i do think even the more moderate view that you're trying to express is is too strong in the sense that yes, the, the, the rest of the world is going to be moving here. And yes, I think certainly I have a somewhat more hawkish view and Bruce is kind of pushing that as well on this on this, uh, this call here. But I think it's going to be more gradual than the Fed. And so I, I think that the, 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 you're going to be in this world again where the U.S. is going to look attractive and increasingly attractive certainly for the rest of this year and into next year.
1: That's a fair point, because if U.S. policy expectations have adjusted faster than the rest of the world, then that still
2: would have them look attractive. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. One of the interesting things on the divergence, by the way, Joe, and a slight caveat, is that the balance sheets are actually going to be a little more synchronized than rates potentially, it looks like. You've got everybody, gradual runoff, uh, you certainly by the time you get to 2023, which is when the Fed runoff really kicks in, right?
3: Yeah, that is interesting, Mike. I mean, can you just actually provide a little color on what's going on there? I mean, you wouldn't have thought, like if we all view the balance sheet as some type of monetary policy tool, and so if the Fed is moving earlier and perhaps more aggressively, you would say, oh, well, the balance sheet is moving down more. But exactly as you said, when you look at that table you put out, it's fairly synchronized. Is that the right way to view it, or is there just some more mechanical things going on there?
2: Well, I think there's a couple of things. I think outside of the ECB and the BOJ, the smaller open economy DM central banks end up, uh, perhaps because of similar conditions like Bruce is alluding to, but perhaps because they're sort of forced to follow the Fed anyway, they kind of end up being a bit synchronized and certainly more than the last cycle, right? Because you got many more central banks that are doing QE and therefore doing QT in the coming years, right? So that's certainly one piece of what's going on. Um, the, The ECB is interesting because they're really not doing any kind of runoff asset holdings until 2024. But um, the expectations I understand it is that you're going to have some voluntary uh, uh,
0: TLTROS run off, right? Right. Yeah, I tend to think about that in a very different way. Well, that's so I what would,
3: I, yeah that that and also same with Bank of right. Japan. I think is a lot yeah. of these uh, these kind of these emergency credit programs that, that are going to end. Right. Yeah.
0: Let me right. let me sort of stop here because I want to just sort of end on a. A slightly different note, which is how worried should we be? I mean, and, and, and I think everybody can take their own view here that we might just be missing something as we're watching quite a bit of downward momentum here. You know, how, how, what's a, what's, you know, the level of comfort we have that things are going to be in a position in March and beyond for the kind of adjustments we're talking about, not just from the Fed and elsewhere, where in some ways we all kind of can see that downward momentum. We can all see the baseline view that that momentum is reasonably sharp but short-lived. You know, where's where's your guys' level of comfort on that view and relative to an alternative scenario where um, U.S. and the global economy actually disappoint here and maybe changes the 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 profile we we're, we're, we're talking about. I don't know who wants to jump in first. Mike raises his hand.
2: So you're obviously focused on growth in that way you're phrasing that question. And I'm, you know, I'm reasonably confident that once we get to the second quarter, we're going to see a decent growth rebound, Uh, because it sounds like the Omicron hit is going to be relatively synchronized in the first quarter. Uh, And there seems to be reasonable expectation that you're going to get some reprieve from the combination from the various sources in which globally people are going to be immune, right? So much of which is going to be people having caught Omicron. Where I would, would have somewhat more skepticism with the downward momentum than the view is with inflation. I actually, and Powell emphasized this, that he doesn't see supply chain issues really fading material until the second half of the year. I think there's some risk that inflation remains. Elevated a bit longer. Obviously, the data has come off a bit recently, outside of uh, uh, some of the commodity prices. But I think there's some still some risk there, and that's a global shock.
0: All right. Let me. I'm going to give you the last word, Joe, since that's the natural place you you should be. But Jay, I want to ask your 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 perspective on this from a slightly different angle, which is, you know, you're much more focused on markets here, and with the Fed moving and possibly faster, uh, with ten-year yields moving and possibly more. Is there some place in the credit, in the fixed income space that you kind of see potential source of stress either in the U.S. or elsewhere that you would want to flag? I'm, I'm going to start really close to home and say the tips market, Bruce,
1: right? Because the chair talked about it today, how the whole exercise and fate has been to anchor inflation expectations. And there's been a move down in the far forward inflation expectations in the tips market over the last couple of weeks as we priced a more hawkish Fed. And it happened again today. So I think first place If there's sort of like an iterative feedback loop from this, that if those long-term inflation expectations go down too much, that that could potentially, in a perverse fashion, reflexively have the Fed be a bit more cautious. I think the other thing to consider too um, is, you know, I think especially in the context of balance sheet runoff um, and thinking about policy there is, you know, the the view on, on on mortgage spreads as well, because I think we know when rates rose pretty significantly via the taper tantrum and mortgage durations extended in 2013, that was a pretty big governor on the economy as well. So I think that's probably the other place
0: we need to watch for as well. All right, Joe, take us home.
3: Well, so, I mean, everything Mike, Laid out. I mean, I, I I agree. There's a near-term headwind. We look at the fundamentals. It seems like things are going to be strong. Yes, the inflation kind of risk seems skewed to the upside, and we can tell either kind of supply chain stories or expectations some dislodging. All that is a kind of a narrative that I think is is out there and is is an upside. And I I, I agree with that. There is a downside that worries me that which is just. And I was surprised you didn't see people pressing Powell on this more, but boy, to keep talking about the, he said the labor market is very, very, very good. I think he used two varies. very, very good, right? You still have employment, which is really depressed. And you've got obviously labor supply, which is depressed. And that's what's giving you a very tight labor market. Doesn't mean it's a very good labor market. And I personally think that if we get out of this and we suddenly are in a world where you have this kind of hysteresis effect setting in like you kind of have seen in Europe in the past, that's a that's a downside that that comes out of this pandemic, and so if that's the this time is different part of this, I guess there's uh we end up in a world with a much lower level of potential, even if the level of potential growth kind of comes back to wherever it's at. It's just we're kind of lowered our sights on on the the U.S. economy for a long time. I'd say the U.K. is in that that bucket as well. So that's something that downside is something that is kind of uh, worries me a little bit.
0: Okay, so I think we'll we'll end on that note. Thanks everybody for the conversation. Thanks everybody for listening. Hopefully we can uh, keep the conversation going on Global Data Pod. Thank you.
3: This communication is provided for information purposes only. Please refer to J.P. Morgan research reports related to its content for more information, including important disclosures. 2022 J.P. Morgan Chase and Company. All rights reserved. This episode was recorded in January 2022.